0: it's legislation to help farmers ensure that they're going to be able to meet their needs in the future. It's really, it's about supporting farmers through incentives to do what they already can see as good solutions for their farms to deal with both decreasing greenhouse gas emissions from farming. And it's also helping them to deal with those increasingly severe droughts, heat waves, floods, pests changing all the time. So it's it's really a combined approach that helps them deal with both aspects
1: of climate change. That was Kathy Day of the National Sustainable Ag Coalition, or NSAC, describing the Agriculture Resilience Act. It's a really comprehensive bill about agriculture that addresses climate change on the farm and in the food system. It builds on the broad public support for incentivizing change based on what farmers, researchers and advocates have been calling for. The overall goal of the ARA is to move toward climate resilient systems and to support people along the way. To get into the details, I spoke with Kathy Day, NSAC's resident ARA expert.
0: I'm Kathy Day. I'm the Climate Policy Coordinator for the National Sustainable Agriculture
1: Coalition. How would you summarize what's what's in it and what it's all about?
0: Yeah, well, the Agriculture Resilience Act is entirely oriented at ensuring that agriculture can meet the challenges of climate change going forward. So that includes a focus on reducing agricultural greenhouse gas emissions, as well as increasing farm resilience to climate change impacts. And it does that through a few different means. One is increasing the focus of research on climate change. Another is targeting both within the conservation programs and within the insurance programs, some improvements to ensure that soil health is a goal. Another is to ensure that farms are preserved as farms going into the future and that they have the support that they need. So that's a combined piece looking at farmland protection and local markets and those two things as a way to support farms and ensure that farmers have the income they need going into the future. And then there's a section on pasture-based livestock that covers a lot of ground and looks at mostly different ways of moving livestock from you know confined animal feeding operations and the like and out to pasture-based systems. And then there's also a section on on-farm renewable energy that has a few different focus pieces. And last, there's a section on food loss and waste.
1: Wow. So it sounds really comprehensive. How many pages is it?
0: So the whole act together, that's a great question that I haven't thought about recently. Let's just take a look. It is 215 pages.
1: (laughs) Wow. Okay. So how do you break down such a big thing into something that might be more digestible to, to people, even, you know, legislators and their staffers often are generalists and aren't experts in ag. They might cover any number of other topics. So how do you approach breaking down such a huge thing when talking to people who aren't familiar with ag or people who are familiar with ag but aren't familiar with policy?
0: Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And it depends a bit on who the person is. So I generally am going to bring in an overview of the bill if it, we're talking about the staff of a member of Congress, but I will tailor it a bit to what the needs of their district are. So if there is somebody who has already a lot of livestock in their district and it looks like they have potential to make a shift in the district more towards pasture based systems, then that's something I'm likely to bring forward. Almost every district seems to have some interest in state assistance for soil health because that's something that allows more state money to flow out to soil health priorities with you know a state specific focus to it so there are certain pieces like that state assistance for soil health that tend to be good to bring up in almost every context but others are definitely dependent on the district so is it an urban district is it a rural district is it somewhere with livestock is it somewhere with a lot of diversified agricultural operations so i really um, consider which provisions are going to be most important to that district because part of speaking about it with members of Congress is ensuring that I'm making it clear why it's advantageous to them. So thinking about what their needs are is part of my approach.
1: So just like how the Farm Bill covers lots of different things, the ARA also covers a wide range of issues. It's a marker bill, which we discussed on the last episode, but to recap, a marker bill is a bill that a legislator introduces to Congress with the intention of getting other legislators to co-sponsor it. The whole point is to show political support for an idea and use it to find new supporters in Congress. It can also be a tool for organizing around those ideas because it spells out the specific things you're asking for. So if you're a farmer and you're going to advocate for the Farm Bill to support climate resilient agriculture, asking your representative to support a specific marker bill is much more effective than to ask them to just do something about climate change already. If you have a general request for them and they say yes, they haven't actually committed to doing anything. So instead you share a personal story about how climate change is affecting you and the barriers farmers face to adopting climate resilient practices. And then you ask your representative to support a specific set of solutions. In this case, the Agriculture Resilience Act. So the ARA is very comprehensive, but in order to build support for specific parts of it, some other marker bills have been broken out of the ARA to build support for them individually.
0: So a lot of the goal with those breakout marker bills is to identify the folks for whom that bill is really meaningful. So as I mentioned in talking to members of Congress, we're often looking at which parts of the bill will make a difference in someone's district or will make a difference for a state if we're talking about a senator. So it's you know looking at finding support for those different pieces in a way that ensures that we're having as much bipartisan support across the bill as we can. So if we have a Republican state with a lot of livestock and a lot of interest in pasture-based systems, then that's a great target for getting that state on board with the pasture-based pieces and then drawing on democratic support as well. Yeah, again, very much depends on states and districts and what they look like. And then when those marker bills come out, we carry them out to our members to, to talk about them further and to help us in getting further support from additional members of Congress on those.
1: By members, Kathy is referring to members of NSAC. There are over 100 member organizations around the country, many of which are membership organizations that you can join. Those member organizations are often hard at work on state and local policy work too, as well as farmer education work. So if NSAC staff in DC need to build support in a particular state, they often reach out to the group or groups that work in that state to build grassroots movements. You mentioned climate is the big focus of it, and I gather justice is another part of it. Do you want to describe the aspects of the ARA that focus on justice in the Farm Bill?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So there are and pieces especially associated with the conservation programs that the ARA goes out of its way to ensure that people are getting the support that they need there are within the existing conservation programs five percent set asides currently for beginning farmers and what usda calls socially disadvantaged farmers which broadly means farmers of color and the ara takes those five percent for each of those groups combines those groups together and then says let's give 30 percent." of the funding set aside for those groups because we know you know there's an oversubscription problem with these programs all over the place but it's particularly acute for beginning farmers and farmers of color because they don't tend to have the existing relationships with the natural resources conservation service so it's really important to ensure that there are funds set aside for them, targeted for them, so that when they go in, there will be funding available and they'll be more successful in their first application round because applications are complicated and challenging. And so it's important to ensure that they, you know, when they move through the process, it works for them as soon as it can. That's probably the most significant piece, but there is also mandatory set aside of 1% out of the technical assistance to help farmers who are mitigating and adapting to climate change and so generally speaking with technical assistance part of our goal as as we go toward implementation out of the farm bill especially will be ensuring that farmers of color and beginning farmers are really getting the support that they need and so we see that as a potential piece to target toward those farmers as we go out
1: so this is essentially an effort to get usda to focus on supporting bipoc or black indigenous or people of color farmers by setting aside a larger portion of their funding specifically for those groups
0: and then there are also some pieces of the bill that focus on protecting farmland and um, this has shifted a bit since the last iteration of the agriculture resilience act but just having You know, consistent farmland protection, helping to prevent the conversion of farmland to urban land is another way just to help ensure that there is enough farmland and that land prices don't rise further and get more out of reach of farmers of color and beginning farmers in particular.
1: Is the main mechanism for that ag conservation easements?
0: That's one piece, and then strengthening the Farmland Protection Policy Act is another piece. So that's going to be land that is under the control of federal agencies or projects that are using federal funds and ensuring that that doesn't get converted to non-agricultural uses if it's currently under agricultural uses.
1: One of the ARA's goals is that there are several programs that it is seeking to move from the precarious position of having to fight for funding annually through the appropriations process the firm footing of five-year Farm Bill funding?
0: Things like the climate hubs, they already exist. They've been created under USDA, but they don't have legislative authorization. They don't have that permanent support in the Farm Bill. And that is one that receives permanent support through the ARA and helps to ensure that farmers are going to get both the The gathering together of the research that they need to support what they're doing, and then the extension and education out of it, because that's what the hubs do is really focus on the climate change piece of agriculture, but mostly through gathering research and sharing it out more effectively.
1: Research in the ARA focuses on climate adaptation and mitigation and adds new language to the overall mission of USDA ag research builds up programs like the Climate Hubs, the Sustainable Ag Research and Education Program, or SARE, that we mentioned in the last episode, the Long-Term Agroecosystem Research Network, or LTAR, and breeding new crop varieties and livestock breeds to address climate change adaptation needs. And so currently, they have to sort of fight for funds every year through the appropriations process rather than having it be authorized mandatory spending for the whole length of the Farm Bill
0: exactly yeah yeah Yeah. and that's that's true for the long-term agroecosystem research centers similar help in the ara to get that more permanent support and then there are some similar pieces over in the conservation area as well so for example the grazing lands conservation initiative as as i know you are well aware has been fighting for funding Recently, on an annual basis, even though the programs existed for a long time, it hasn't been getting funded until recently. And so the idea is that the Agriculture Resilience Act would also make that more permanent.
1: We'll get into the Grazing Lands Conservation Initiative, or GLCI, on a future episode. But it was a program that was critical in my home state of Wisconsin in providing technical assistance for grazing. But GLCI's funding was cut in 2009. So it was authorized to exist, but hadn't been funded through the annual appropriations process until just last year, when we successfully got $14 million appropriated for it. So parts of the ARA seek to shift good programs like GLCI onto solid five-year funding, and other parts seek to create new programs.
0: But then there are a few just brand new pieces that are really oriented at supporting what's been going on out in the states. So in particular, I would name that state assistance for soil health I mentioned earlier, that creates a grant program, whether it's for states that don't yet have any sort of programming for soil health or for states that already have an existing program. It allows for access to federal funds to build out those programs, or to create them in the first place in the case of states without programs. And so that would be really helpful, especially for those states that are you know, working right now, places like North Dakota and Oregon are working on developing their state soil health policies. It'd be great for them to have access to funds to help build those out rapidly and get grants out on the ground
1: to people. The ARA has three soil health goals. One, become a member of the 4 per 1000 initiatives forum and consortium with the aim of increasing soil carbon stocks by 0.4% annually. Two, expand adoption of soil health practices to restore at least half of lost carbon by 2040. And three, maintain year round cover on at least 75% of cropland acres by 2040. One of the ways it aims to achieve these goals is, like Kathy mentioned, supporting state-level soil health efforts through a new block grant program. A block grant is an annual sum of money from the federal government to a state or tribal government to help fund a specific project or program, in this case, technical assistance, financial assistance, on-farm research and demonstration, education training, and more. It covers a lot of, specifically, research around agriculture and climate change, some issues with protecting farmland, and then some specific justice issues. What in there specifically goes to support beginning farmers?
0: For one, it's going to be under those same set-asides, so that 30% set-aside in the conservation programs. And then another piece is for those who are in organic production, there's specific support to ensure that those who are currently in organic production at least get the the cost share support to get their certification on an annual basis that's been kind of a complicated process split up between two different programs over the last few years and this allows it to be made single and permanent for uh, farmers to get that support and so that would include new farmers and it's those certification costs are one of those steep challenges for organic agriculture so it's a it's a great way to help people to get over the hurdle and become organically certified and then farmland protection i would name is just generally important to ensuring land prices stay low and ensuring that there's access to farmland for beginning
1: farmers is there anything else in there specifically that addresses land and land access?
0: The farmland protection is the one piece and then the agriculture conservation easement program as well. So this this bill is not centered on land access, but it does have just a couple of pieces that address it.
1: We'll cover land access policy and the Farm Bill in an upcoming episode. But what kind of support exists already for the ARA and where is that headed?
0: We have a few breakout pieces from the bill already that are garnering bipartisan support one of those is the part of the section on livestock includes the full strengthening local processing act so that one already is out with full bipartisan support in congress and you know that's a really important piece to address we saw in the pandemic how much meat processing was challenged by you know conditions where we had a lot of people unable to attend work and then plant workers getting very sick at work and all of that and so strengthening local processing is a really important part of addressing that risk preparedness but also of course for addressing getting more meat from small sustainable local farmers into the system because so many of them now are looking for more local processors to to work with them and to get their meat out to their customers more directly then we also have other pieces likely to move i'm, I'm going to speak in more vague terms for things that aren't already out on the floor but for example we have some pieces that look like they'll move forward from the conservation programs to get some good support for both of those we've seen a lot of support for thinking hard about crop insurance and being strategic about what crop insurance should look like and so some elements of the area are likely to move forward in conjunction with some other things that aren't in the area on that And there are several research pieces that are on the move, and I think are are likely to garner bipartisan support as they go forward. And for all of these pieces, we hope to to garner some bipartisan support. And the challenge in this year is that, you know, parts of Congress have been given specific directives from their leadership that nothing that's, that's new will go forward. And so sometimes we run into roadblocks on that. But Sometimes things seem important enough to folks that they go forward anyway. So we'll kind of be playing that by ear as it goes forward.
1: So there's the conservation side of it and then also the crop insurance side of it. So can you just give a brief explainer of like the problems that it's trying to address and then what mechanisms it's trying to use to address the the problems in crop insurance or that crop insurance causes?
0: One of the problems that we've been seeing in crop insurance is that the risk management agency that oversees crop insurance at the USDA, US Department of Agriculture level sometimes doesn't see things in the same light as the Natural Resources Conservation Service does. And from the risk management agency's perspective, and I'll call them RMA, they want everything that farmers do, if they're going to get a payout, it can't have been some approach that reduces their yield. But the Natural Resources Conservation Service has a variety of practices that is helping farmers to adopt that often are, you know, they're intended to improve outcomes in the longer term, but it takes farmers some time to get over the hump of adopting them because they may be, you know, they may be trying something out where they're reducing their fertilizer use in favor of cover crops. Well, it can take a couple of years for the soil to get to the point where the life in the soil, the microbiome. The plants that you're adding into the mix and all of that are replacing the functions of the fertilizer and so for a year two or three as you're starting to implement that new system you may find that you have a yield reduction and rcs just keeps supporting people to ensure that they can get over that hump but from the risk management agency perspective when those yield reductions happen they see that as, as a signal that people shouldn't receive a payout so some of what the agriculture resilience act does is try to harmonize what NRCS, Natural Resources Conservation Service, calls good farming practices with what the risk management agency is doing. And so saying that those should be one and the same rather than differing with each other. There's another rather different set of things that extends beyond crop insurance that's in the ARA, which is the conservation compliance pieces. Currently under federal law, if you receive farm payouts essentially of any kind, then you are required on your highly erodible land, which is a special designation that the federal government gives to certain land, and it was generally established a couple of decades ago.
1: Steep and maybe like thinner topsoil, like just not a place where you should be tilling and growing crops every year, probably, right?
0: Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it includes places like those that were under the Dust Bowl in the 30s and where the land just really rapidly erodes when it's left loose to the wind without plant cover or, you know, the really hilly and uh, rain-prone areas of Iowa is another place where that's pretty common. And so, you know, the federal government has said those designated lands have to be kept under uh, a plan, have to be carefully managed in order for you to get a payout. At least that's what's on the books. And it's similar for wetlands. If there's what's designated as a wetland under previous, you know, again, a few decades ago it was designated as such, then you have to manage it carefully and, you know, not convert things that are current wetlands out to new crop production. If you follow those things, then you get your ordinary payouts is, is the rule. But um there's not a whole lot of enforcement of that. That's it's challenging because it's under the aegis of the Natural Resources Conservation Service. And, you know, they they see themselves as educators, as supporters, as advocates, and being put in the role of having to be enforcers is rather contrary to the rest of their mission. And so it's quite challenging for them to deal with.
1: Yeah, I've I've found that across the board, whenever there's the same people have to build relationships and educate over the long run, asking them to regulate or enforce, it does not work. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. So there are some challenges there and enforcement happens well in some states, less well in others. But there's also the broader underlying problem that just designating highly rotable land and wetlands under this coverage means that there are a lot of other lands that are experiencing really high rates of erosion and there's no plan for farmers to address the problem. And so what the Agriculture Resilience Act does is, is apply those restrictions to all farmland, all cropland, rather than just to those that have those often out of date designations as highly erodible or wetlands. And ensure that, you know, all land is meeting some basic guidelines of keeping its soil in place, which, you know, has long term benefits for the farm itself, in addition to all of the water, air, climate benefits that go along with it. So that would be a really important piece to move yeah, forward. So it-
1: soil is so valuable on the farm and then as soon as it leaves it's so expensive. Yep, yep. <laughs> for everyone else. Yeah.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, so if you wanted to leave people with a overview sort of argument for supporting the ARA, if people are going to come away from listening to this with a couple sentences on what is the ARA, what would you want to stick in their minds about it?
0: Yeah, I would say that it's legislation to help farmers ensure that they're going to be able to meet their needs in the future. It's really it's about supporting farmers through incentives to do what they already can see as good solutions for their farms to deal with both decreasing greenhouse gas emissions from farming because all other sectors are decreasing the greenhouse gas emissions and farmers are going to be expected to keep up. And this helps them to do that. And it's also helping them to deal with those increasingly severe droughts, heat waves, floods, pests changing all the time. All of those challenges that they're dealing with as a result of climate change right now. So it's it's really a combined approach that helps them deal with both aspects of climate change.
1: Sounds like a good idea to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fully agree with you there.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Kathy. I really appreciated getting your your insight into this bill. And it's like the farm bill, a little hard to wrap your head around succinctly, all of the information in it and all of the parts of it that that so many different people are working on around the country.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Chuck.
1: Thanks to Kathy Day for her time and energy to be interviewed for the podcast, but also for her leadership and insight in moving the ARA forward in Washington, DC on behalf of all NSAC members across the country. We'll continue to have more episodes on farm bill issues like climate change, land access, discrimination in the USDA, and marker bills that are breakouts from the ARA. Make sure you subscribe, share this podcast with your friends and neighbors, Review the show on Apple Podcasts and get involved with your local sustainable ag policy group if you haven't already. Thanks to NSAC for funding this project and for collaborating with us on its content and direction. And thank you for listening. Talk to you soon.